Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence, of course. I'm Thomas. And I'm Nick. And we've got a... Wow, that that pop from your uh, your beer was really loud. I got, <laughs> I got so taken out of it for a second. Uh, we're having kind of a, a low-down, you know, normal conversation with a, a friend, Austin, today, who's a loyal listener and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I, I can't get over how freaking loud <laughs> my my laptop jumped i almost jumped out of my skin so oh my gosh so welcome austin and i hope your headphones didn't blow out yeah i still have my eardrums thanks for having me guys yeah Austin, why don't you um just introduce yourself real quick and then we'll talk about uh, why we've got you on the show today other than the yeah, fact that you're awesome <laughs> well that can be debated uh yeah thanks for having me once again i uh i love the synergist podcast and uh, have been a loyal listener for quite some time ever since Nick and I became friends. Oh gosh, I don't know, going on a year now, maybe. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, about then. And... I got I got an email from you out of the blue saying, "Hey, I'm a I'm a Midwestern Baptist student, and I got issues with you." No, you're you're actually really nah. nice. No, you're really nice. So yeah, that was that was a fun time, and it was it's it's been real fun since mm-hmm. then. But I'll take you back to the year 1993, the year I was born. Uh, wow. From St. Louis. <laughs> wow. We won't Young. go that far back. Young. That's right. Yep. 26, July 30th. If anyone uh, wants to send me a birthday present, I've got my eye on that new N.T. Wright Michael Bird book on the backgrounds of the New Testament. Ooh, that nice. looks absolutely awesome. Um, but yeah, I'm, uh, I live in Kansas City with my wife, Morgan, who just graduated from the UMKC School of Dentistry. So, Fantastic. Yeah. Nice. So uh, props to her. I'm very proud of her. Um, so Austin, uh, you, how, how long have you been mar- married to Morgan? A year and two months now. Wow. So wow. would you yeah. say you're enameled with her? Oh. There we go. Oh. There we go. Wow. We oh, haven't even gotten into really good. bad pasture joke. And y'all can turn was... it off right now, folks. It gets worse from here on out. Man. Oh. That, that was, was good. That, mm. that was, man. I, I feel very have, good about myself for some reason. <laughs> We have competing concepts of the good right now. <laughs> so I, don't know, I, I give that I give that a K nine out of ten. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, oh, there's man. not enough beer in the world for this to get any better. Oh, <laughs> oh man, that's great. Well, uh... <laughs> so anyway, the the reason that we are having Austin, his uh, last name is Burgard, by the way, emphasis on the burr. He says, um, so we're having Austin Burgard because. Uh, those of you who are listening, if you have been keeping track on social media at all recently, you know there's been a major flurry recently in regard to uh, women preaching. Um, and it all started basically with uh, an online article that was written by Owen Strawn. He was the former president of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, he's a professor at um, one of the Baptist seminaries. Which one? Uh, Midwestern, Midwestern, last I checked. Midwestern Baptist Seminary. Um, so anyway, he, he penned this article um, basically criticizing, uh, making a case for male-only preachers. Those of you who have been listening for a while, you know that uh, Nick and I are ardent supporters of women in ministry at every level of church leadership and in the pulpit. Um, and so obviously we take issue with that. Um, but Austin is a former student um, at that seminary and a former, um, what was your actual position? What'd you do with Owen? Yeah, I was a research assistant. I basically 
was his personal assistant. I didn't just do research. Uh, did everything from researching ETS articles to getting Jimmy Johns. Okay. So All whatever right. you want to title that. Because that goes a, beyond the realm. Wait, realm wait, wait. What, what's, what's Jimmy Johns? Is that a clothing or something? I've actually never heard of this thing. <laughs> Are you serious, oh, Nick? Really? I'm 100% really? serious. I have no it, idea what this actually it, means. It's a better version of Subway. Okay, They're one, there fast. is no such thing as better than Subway. That's a bar in Satan's wine cellar kind of low. Oh, so, wow. like. If it's better than mm. Subway, that's not saying much. But okay, now it's oh, sandwiches. Well. I thought it was, I thought it was like Tommy Bahamas or something like that. <laughs> no, nope. Yeah, it was either Jimmy John's or Chipotle. I probably could still remember his order, uh, but that might be a little too much personal detail. So. Yeah, we, we won't get into that. Um, so you are you are Owen Strawn's research assistant slash gopher, I guess. You know, Jimmy Johner. What that's the new phrase? Jimmy Johner. He's the Jimmy Johner. Jimmy Johner. Yeah. Um, so you have a unique perspective um, into Owen Strawn. We, uh, I've actually, personally, I've written a couple of blogs um, it, critiquing Owen in the past, and, and we did some things. We've talked about that here. So, But you have a unique perspective, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. Uh, but first, this wouldn't be an episode of Synergist Podcast without talking about our grain-based beverages. Um, so Austin, we know that you're Baptist. Do you participate in grain-based beverages? I do. I yes. do. Tonight, I am drinking a Boulevard Pale Ale, oh. Kansas City creation. Y'all need to come to KC Mo. National Geographic says so, and try <laughs> our beer and barbecue because it's the best. That is going to be like the most controversial thing I say today. Yeah, no, we I, might not be able to air this simply because you said it's the best. So, <laughs> it, it, it's it. So I uh, I went to college um, in Kansas City. Actually, I went to UMKC, the same school as Austin's wife. And Boulevard was my very first beer that I ever bought for myself when I turned twenty one. Uh, it was an unfiltered wheat, and so I'm a little a little jealous that you've got Boulevard tonight. Tell us a little bit about the the beer that you're drinking. Yeah, it's a, like I said, it's a pale ale. Um, it's pretty balanced as a light, it's, it's pretty light. Um, the malt, it's, it's pretty mellow and kind of almost toffee like, um, it's really interesting. It's kind of bitter and lots of floral and citrusy aromas. So it's nice. enjoyable. Nice. Nice. Sounds what about good. you, Thomas? What are you sipping? What are you sipping? So tonight I have Founders Centennial IPA. It's an India Pale Ooh. Ale. Um, it's got a little bit of a citrus accent to it. Some some dry hops. Uh, a little bit sweet, um, but uh, just a generally refreshing IPA. Definitely not too hoppy, but um, so it's got a 65 IBUs for those of you who keep track of that. Um, and it was on sale, 15, uh, cans for $16 and it's a local brew here in Indiana. So I'm pretty nice. pleased with it. Very nice. My first beer I ever had was a Bellhaven Twisted Thistle, which is a British IPA. So goes to show I'm not truly Canadian as some people have alleged <laughs> that I am. I hail from across the Atlantic, but I am drinking currently a Bacon and Eggs Imperial Coffee Porter wow. by Pizza Port. Whoa. It's a local California down in Carlsbad, so about, oh, I'd say about maybe an hour or less south of where I grew up in southern Orange County. Okay. Um, it is very heavy on the coffee, but with minimal acidity. Uh, it's almost got kind of a chocolate sweetness to it, but very light, mm. almost like that dark chocolate kind of burnt aftertaste you get when you eat really good dark chocolate. 
Nice. It's okay. quite tasty. It's n- not super. It's not. It doesn't have the consistency of the stouts like that, like a motor oil kind of vibe to it, where you drink it and it's just like <laughs> drinking syrup. It's a little lighter than that, but it's it's tasty and it's hovering around eight uh, percent ABV if you're into that sort of thing, as I am. But it's nice. quite tasty. It's the first beer I've actually had. Well, one of the few beers I've actually had since I've gotten off my Lenten alcohol strike. So nice. Okay. Did, did you ba- did you leave this one out to warm up? Is that I know you do that sometimes with your. Oh, they're beers. they're sitting on our kitchen floor right now. It's a six pack. I just, it's sitting in front of where I put my shoes. So <laughs> it, it is not. I don't put it in the fridge or anything like that. If it's a stout or a porter, it stays exactly at room temperature, and I crack it as such. Okay. All right. And I am drinking out of my the Junia Project uh, mug that I have that I got from them at a She Leads conference. So if if there were any debate over my thoughts on this issue we're talking about, I've made it known that um, I prefer to drink from the Junia Projects. Well, deep. There you go. Cheers to them. (laughs) Although I don't think we'll talk about her today. They're good Wesleyans, so who knows if they actually drink? But you know, cheers (laughs) to them. Cheers. So. Austin, as a loyal listener, you know that one of our main staples on this show is what we call really bad pastor joke. So in light of that, uh, not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot, do you have a really bad pastor's joke or just a bad joke in general that you'd like to share with us? I think I do. Uh, I was thinking about this a little bit. So here, here it is. What time of the day... Did God create Adam? Oh no! Oh what? Gosh. What? A little before Eve. Uh, uh, that that is of, a really bad pastor's joke. Yeah, yes, that it is, is emphasis on the really bad. Yep. Wow. <laughs> yep. It seemed pertinent though. We're talking about uh, divine order. Oh, 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 wow! You you planned for this. Mm-hmm. Kudos. Kudos. It's only merely go. bad. It's not Ooh. really bad. It's merely bad. All right. All it's right. kind of like the Princess Bride. She's only mostly dead. Yes. <laughs> so, That's a uh, really bad English accent. So, so I'm my just people gonna... are offended, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to wing it here, but what do you call the day before Eve was created? Hmm. I'm scared. Yeah. Eve, Eve. Oh, <laughs> can I exit this call and just go do something else? Right? <laughs> uh, wow. All right. Okay. I swear this is my first beer. Uh, well, first in the past since we've started. Or, all right. Here's one. I, I got one. I found this. Austin, you'll find this funny because uh, you got a bit of South with you, uh, mm-hmm. Timmy. And it's a joke I found on the internet. It's not my own. I have my own, but it's a little too naughty for what we're doing. So I had to table that. <laughs> Uh, I'm a good person, so I swear. Uh, here we go. Uh, Timmy didn't want to put his money in the offering plate Sunday morning. You know, little kid. So his mother decided to use some hurried creative reasoning with him. You know, and all that sort of stuff. You know, he's got his money in his hand, but he doesn't want to put it in the in the offering. And she says, you don't want that money, honey. She whispered, whispered in his ear. Dr- quick, drop your money in the plate. It's tainted. And horrified, of course, the little boy obeyed and dropped his money in there. After a few seconds, he whispered, But mommy, why, why was the money tainted? Was it dirty? Oh no, dear, she replied. It's not really dirty. It just taint yours and it taint mine. It's God's. Oh. oh. Wow. Here, but here's one that's not a really bad pastor joke, but I think it's just a really bad joke. Okay. All right. And it's pertinent because we're drinking certain malted beverages. All right. So, the past, present, and future walk into a bar. It was tense. 
Cheers uh, to stupidity. <laughs> Cheers. Okay. Well, now that we've got everybody sufficiently groaning, we can we can dive into this topic. So again, to, to set the stage, um, Owen Strawn, and I'm, I'm glad you told me that. I, I always, I yeah. Sometimes little, I forget that a lot. A strand. 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 Yeah. Owen Strand. But not Straken, which is how I always pronounce it. So I'm glad you corrected. Some me. people would call some people would call him Doctor Strachan. So it's better than that. <laughs> Doctor Strachan. Um, I kind of like that so, actually. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, leading up to Mother's Day, he tweeted a pretty controversial tweet about how the one thing all uh, complementarians agree on is that women do not preach in the church on Sunday. It was very specific, and then he wrote a blog article um, supporting that in which he calls divine order in a chaotic age on women preaching. And so we're just going to talk about that. But um, first, also, why don't you tell us your story? Because you weren't always uh, egalitarian, right? Correct. Um, so how tell us about your journey from complementarianism to egalitarianism and before you do that just in case we have listeners who aren't familiar with those terms um austin why don't you ex- define um complementarian and egalitarian and then tell us about uh, your journey yeah so at a fifty thousand foot level complementarianism states that that man is the leader in the church and the home by god's good created order as dr strand points out in his article based on texts in Genesis, um, 1 Timothy, Ephesians 5. Egalitarianism advocates for equality in both marriage and the church, uh, based on mutual submission, based upon the progressive nature of the scriptures. Um, There are many different factors, but once again, that's just a 50,000-foot view. Okay, okay. So basically, complementarianism is um, men are the leaders that you've got, that they're equal in value, but... uh, differ in function, whereas egalitarian says equal in value as well as equal in function. Um, so our question for you, Austin, is I know our listeners want to know, when did you stop believing the clear teaching of the Bible regarding complementarianism <laughs> and give in to cultural Marxism um, and, and become an egalitarian? Yes, you know, I became a Marxist after <laughs> reading Karl Marx, obviously. Karl um, Marx was no. all about that, you know, complementarian lifestyle. That's right, clearly. <laughs> Clearly, he and Mussolini and all the other dictators, that's who we should follow after, apparently. Um, no, that's that's a little too harsh. Um, no, so I so let me go back a little bit. I became a believer in 2011. Um, I wasn't really raised in the church. Okay. Um, and so, well, I kind of was. That's a different story. We, we won't get into that right now. <laughs> but uh, kind of inherited... A complementarianism because once I got to Truman State, um, I was introduced to John Piper and Reformed theology, which that's a whole nother story too. Mm-hmm. But uh, it just seemed to be the right thing to do. Um, <laughs> I'm, it, you know, if John Piper believed it, so did I. And that's not a snub at John Piper, even though I disagree with him on quite a bit nowadays. Um, I have the utmost respect for him um, because he was there at a point in my life that I needed. But Anyway, inherited that view from him and then just kind of continued to bolster that view by listening to Grudem and Piper and, um, and Dr. Strand and, and all those kind of guys, um, you know, Desiring God, TGC, um, kind of insulated myself with those guys 
And so it wasn't until, I guess, what year is it? It's 2019. Um, maybe towards the beginning of 2018, uh, end of 2017, really began to question my views on complementarianism. Uh, before this point, I was pretty darn patriarchal. Um, you could ask my wife, one of the, when her and I were, were beginning to date, one of the stipulations was that she had to be okay with being a stay-at-home mom, giving up her career in dentistry just so that we could be together. Um, wow. Yeah, so that, that was, I mean, there's, there's more that could be said there. But yeah, that's where I was at. And I mean, even Dr. Strand's book on, uh, what's, it's called The Grand Design that he wrote with uh, Gavin Peacock, they get pretty close to suggesting the same. Hmm. Um, that and they get close to suggesting that women shouldn't even go to college; that they should be under the authority of their fathers until they get married. Which, goodness, that's a whole other issue about the personhood wow. of women. Wow. Um. So, so that, but that's where I was at. That's where I was at. Just to be quite honest. But then, yeah. I actually started doing a lot of ministry with Muslims um, okay. in the Kansas City area. Um, I I frequent hookah lounges with them, <laughs> and uh, yes. I drink beer and I smoke hookah. Oh my god. You're goodness. very bad Baptist. Or you I guess you and I are both very bad Baptist at this point. That's true. And I don't even know if I'm Baptist, so that's a whole nother thing. I go to an Anglican church <laughs> oh, now. So you you running away from the true faith. Alright, fine. Okay, that's sure. right. That's right. Um but anyway, I started to think differently because a lot of the ministry I was doing I was doing around women, um, not not Muslim women, but fellow uh, sisters in Christ who were faithful in sharing and proclaiming the gospel. Um, and even in the Southern Baptist Convention, you have the Lottie Moon Christmas offering where every single year around Christmas time, uh, every single SBC church takes up an offering to send directly to all of their missionaries. Every single cent goes to missionaries on the field. Hmm. And so I had to begin to think about that because what I believed and um, how I was living were not consistent. And so I uh, began to soften up on my complementarianism after, after I began to think about that. And then, oddly enough, um, I came across Nick and his podcast with his wife, Alice, in the Split Frame of Reference hmm. podcast. And I started listening and really began to be compelled. I reached out to Nick and Nick and I started Marco Poloing back and forth, and I started asking him a crap ton of questions um, and asking him to help me walk through this issue. Just so our, our listeners know, you started Marco Poloing. What does that mean? Oh, sorry about that. Marco <laughs> Polo is a it's like a video walkie-talkie app. Okay. So video, yeah, okay. video so text video text messaging basically is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, so so you you were not having these conversations over a fun game in the swimming pool? Um, well, I was in the pool that one time, but Austin doesn't know about that. <laughs> okay. All right. Sorry I'll, to interrupt. I'll, I just I'll defer people. any knowledge. <laughs> it's a great app, by the way. Marco Polo is a great app. It is. Uh, and it's yeah. free. It is free. It's, yep. It is free. Shameless plug for you, Marco Polo. I, you know, I don't know if you guys get royalties, but We are not sponsored by Marco Polo. <laughs> Although if they want to, they can contact us at the Synergist Podcast. But anyway. Patreon, right? Patreon, yes. Patreon, there you go. So uh, back to the story. I I, uh, I reached out to Nick, and he and I started up a theological friendship, which has blossomed into a true friendship, which I'm very thankful for. Likewise. He's really good at that, by the way. He is. He is he's, a very good friend. He's great. Everyone, at 
Nick, I hope you're um, blushing. I am. A little bit. <laughs> there you go. I was going to get but, another beer, but I think I can ride this high for a little while. <laughs> there you go. Just a compliment high. We can be complimentarians. But It's the best kind of complimentarian. Oh. I saw some guy make that joke on uh, Twitter, so that's not original. Shout out to that dude on Twitter, whoever you are. Yeah, that's the good thing about Twitter is, you know, you just set stuff out there and it gets retweeted. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's a verbal uh, so, retweet. That was a verbal retweet. That's what that was. Yeah, there you go. And an and endorsement at that, too. You know, some people say retweet does not equal endorsement. Well, my, my retweets do. So make of that <laughs> of what you will. But um, anyway, Nick and I started up uh, friendship and I just started peppering him with questions. And I read Mike Bird's short book. Uh, on the on the topic as well, I cannot I can never remember the name of that because it's so long, but it's so creative. Um, <laughs> that, de- that describes Mike, Mike Bird to a T. <laughs> that's right. Hey, that's careful! Right. That's my doctor father right there. But yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Mike Bird rocks, guys. Come on. Oh yeah, Mike Come Bird's on. awesome. I'll, I'll find the name of the book. Give me like ten seconds. Yeah, <laughs> except he doesn't like coffee. But I heard that on another podcast. So. Um, yeah, you hear that everywhere. Mike Bird talks, basically. Yeah, it's quite a disappointment. Sanctification um, is progressive. He's got time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's time. Um, but uh, so Nick and I were talking. I read Mike Bird's book. And then I was leading a uh, small group, a men's Bible study, for some of the guys at my wife's dental school. And we were going through First Peter. And the commentary I had decided to use was written by Karen Jobes. Uh, it was, it's in the Baker Academic Series. And uh, it came to me highly recommended. But uh, one of the things was that I, that I kind of wrestled with as I was working through um, these issues was how am I supposed to uh, be a complementarian? Um, I can't I say that women can't teach in the church. How can they write a commentary? How could a woman write a commentary and how could I benefit from that commentary? That's actually not an uncommon kind of thing. I've actually noticed a lot of my friends having that sort of, wait a second, if I'm being consistent here, dot, 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 you know what I mean? And so that's, 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 uh, that's not, uh, limited to you. That's, that's something I've noticed a lot of people actually, I mean, it made it onto the John Piper thing. You know, they actually asked him a question, can I read a commentary or a theology book written by women? And when the answer is, should have just been yes, it was a lot of, uh, well, Piperisms and stuff, but... (laughs) And also, the book, the Mike Bird's book, is Bourgeois Babes, Bossy Wives, and Bobby Haircuts, A Case for Gender Equality in Ministry. I think it's from, like, 2014. But, yes, it's a very Mike Bird thing, and that's why he probably wrote it. But I just wanted to let you all know that's what the book is. And it's a good little book. He probably – he's changed a little bit since he's written that. He's a little more soft on how he interprets some stuff than he is then. But I don't think he'd mind me saying that because, well, he doesn't like coffee, and he can, you know, take it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So – I had began to wrestle with that because right at that time was when Piper had come out and said that women could not be seminary professors. And I thought that was the most asinine thing I had ever heard, that women could not teach the Bible in seminary and that complementarianism had gotten and, and kind of reached its fingers so far outside of what it said it was meant to be that I just thought that was ridiculous and so started to wrestle with these issues seriously because one thing that's important to me is living consistently. I wanted to live uh, the way that I believed. Right. 
and so jumped full force into studying the issue of of egalitarianism so not just women's ordination but also um, equality in marriage because that's a big thing and i was had been married for maybe about six months at that point wow. and was looking at my marriage and the way that my marriage was operating was not like the way complementarians say it does. Mm. I, as an example, I was required to read a parenting book by John MacArthur, <laughs> which that's, that's dangerous. Um, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Just a little, a bit. little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Don't let any young guys get their hands on that. Um, Give them something better. I don't know. Someone needs to write a better parenting book. But no uh, drama discipline. No drama discipline. No, I'm there serious. Fantastic oh, parenting book. Oh, oh okay. I thought you were just being snarky. Book. Okay, yeah, no, that actually, no, oh, wonderful. Okay. Uh, no drama discipline. Wonderful psychology, uh, psychology based, development based uh, book. It, it's not actually even a Christian book, um, but it's it's a wonderful parenting book. Just Whoa, to throw that out how there. dare you? How Sorry. dare you read Did a you... parenting book not written by a Christian? <laughs> they may be Christians. It's just not. It's just not based on the Bible. Um, <laughs> right, anyway, right. sorry to interrupt you. I just figured I'd, no, I'd drop that. No, for sure. No, there you go. Good, good wreck. So um, I was reading the, just as an example of how distorted the complementarian view was in my mind at this point. Was uh, I was reading this book by MacArthur, and I think it was written in gosh, man, the seventies. I don't know. I don't know when MacArthur writes things. Gosh, the guy's a dinosaur. I have the most respect for him, but man, he's he's been doing it a long time. I feel but, like you uh, use utmost respect the way that Southerners use "bless their heart." <laughs> no, no, I, I actually do because I'm, you know, like I said earlier, I'm twenty, almost twenty six, and he's, I don't know, seventy something, <laughs> I think, and he's been in ministry like three of my lifetimes, so. Man, that that takes some, you know. No, no matter what we we believe, um, that takes some, uh, just goodness, some fortitude, and some sustaining by the Lord. Um, so yeah, I, I actually do respect him very much, even though I disagree with him. But uh, to get back to my example, it was uh, in this book. Basically, he got to the men's and women's roles in the home, and. What it boiled down to was that men delegated authority to their wives and could overrule them at any point at which they chose. I wish I had the book with me. I'd read from it, and I just was absolutely dumbfounded. And I thought to myself, is this what I believe? Is this really what I believe about women and about uh, women in the church and in the home? And I was almost appalled at myself. Almost. Hmm. Not quite, because, you know, the clear teaching of the Bible. Um, <laughs> you say tongue-in-cheek, you know, right? You're, that, exactly, exactly. I say tongue-in-cheek. So I, I, I put down that book, talked with my wife, and kind of jumped headlong into the Well, issue. there's your first mistake. You shouldn't have to if you're a good complimentarian. But, you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm joking. My parents are complimentarian. I love them to death. Yeah, I had to ask, I had to ask for permission. She did. But... Um, Anyway, I'm actually sitting at her desk right now with, with wonderful scriptures all around me. So she's a wonderful woman. But um, actually, Stran had assigned me to do this hermeneutics project for him. And I don't think he knows this because he actually hasn't asked me, which is another story. He's ghosted me for six months up until like two weeks ago. But whatever. 
Nick Ooh, knows that. Hold on. What story. did he say two weeks ago? Oh, oh, yeah. He came after me a little bit in a private message because of a comment I made on Drew Johnson's. Um, I don't know. It was like a interview on his devotional life, and I've been in this season of um, deconstruction and, and whatnot for the last six months or so, and. I told I, I just said to Drew that I thought his perspective was refreshing and that I could use a break and he he proceeded uh, that is uh, Dr. Strand he proceeded to reach out to me um, and he hadn't talked to me in six months and he he said that with all the like the love and grace that he could he said uh, he would encourage me not to give up my personal devotions which wasn't the point of Drew's article anyway. Um, if he would have actually read it, I don't think he did. Um, he just kind of responded to what other people were responding to, but that, you know, I shouldn't impute motives to him. I don't know what he actually did or not, but he, I told him that I didn't really want to talk just because of some changes, um, that had gone on over the last two years. And he just told me, Hey Austin, you, um, you're going down a dangerous road. Don't do this. Turn back. Oh, and uh, which I which I've gotten a few times since I've come out with a few of my views. Um, actually, Nick has been helpful in two of those views. He's <laughs> been influential in two of them. So if anyone Nick, you're dragging through, people to hell with you, man. <laughs> I'm, right. no, are you kidding me? I'm driving the bus. Let's go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so so we keep interrupting you. So you he Doctor Strand. Uh, assigned you this hermeneutic te- uh, project on yeah. complementarianism. So not complementarianism, but uh, just hermeneutics in general, because okay. he was going to be teaching a hermeneutics class uh, over the winter semester at Midwestern. Okay. And so I think it was like six or seven books with different hermeneutical methods. And the first one I started with was one that I knew he was going to use as a bad example of what not to do in hermeneutics and was actually the – the book that got me going on egalitarianism <laughs> and it was William, William Webb's slaves, women and homosexuals. Wow. And it, within that book, he talks about this progressive, uh, redemptive hermeneutic and it was absolutely compelling. Um, it, it cast this beautiful picture of the redemptive nature of the scriptures from old to new huh. and uses slavery as a test case for the issues of, of, women in ministry or I, I'd rather prefer the term women's ordination okay um, because that kind of gets down to the the brass tacks of what right. we're talking about and we, right. we're not right you know we're not misleading people we're not doing some uh, double speak here well and complementarians uh, believe that women can be in ministry it's just you know restricted so right exactly exactly so that's why I'd prefer the term women's ordination um, so he got me going down that and uh, so then I just started reading a whole bunch, dialoguing with Nick and talking with a lot of friends. And then the, the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back was Cynthia Westfall's book, Paul and gender. My goodness. If you guys yep. have not read that book, y'all need to read it like now. It is so not, good. not until the end of the episode, but yeah, once the episode's done, right. you're free to go. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it's yeah, one of the yeah. best books I think on women's wow. ministry. And absolutely. And not just women's ministry, but Paul's theology of gender as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just the, the nature of, of what Paul thinks about the genders. She gets into controversial issues um, in First Corinthians 11 and 14 and 
first timothy and ephesians oh my goodness our exegesis of ephesians 5 guys is masterful it is absolutely beautiful um and the way that i like to you'll, you'll have to go read the book for the full treatment but she ends up saying that we have a crucified woman messiah and that's not what anybody expected and it's the most beautiful thing ever she doesn't think jesus was a woman guys so like don't don't have a heart attack. Yeah, go, go read the book before the, you have a heart attack. Right, basically. Right. Go read. Go read the book. Go read the book. It's wonderful. And that was the the straw that broke the camel's back, because I couldn't. I couldn't. I had no good answers for her exegetical arguments, uh, the detailed background information that she did uh, on, on on passages like First Corinthians eleven, fourteen, and then. Uh, First Timothy two, which is a text I'm sure we'll talk about tonight, um, and I go where the scriptures lead. I go, uh, you know, scriptures doesn't come. The, the scriptures didn't come to us in a vacuum, and so taking into account culture and background, um, but ultimately um, combining her approach with a little bit of Scott McKnight, a little bit of uh, Mike Bird, and I came out the other side an egalitarian and in full support of women's ordination, mutuality, and marriage. And now my wife and I sit under some of the best preaching I've ever heard and some of the wisest counsel under two women pastors, who should just be called pastors, by the way. I think Nick called that out the other day on Twitter. Uh, They're pastors, people. They're not women pastors. They're not lady pastors. They're pastors. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, so now we sit under them. And uh, as as the title of this episode, Preach It, Sister, uh, we're we're glad (laughs) glad supporters of women women preaching women's ordination and mutuality in marriage so i just in talking about context i want to set some context here in case our listeners don't get it you were the research assistant for the former president of the council of biblical manhood and womanhood now for those of you who don't know what that is that is like the flagship organization promoting the idea that there is a divine order to leadership in the church and the home, that the whole idea of um, biblical manhood and womanhood is that men are supposed to lead in the church and in the home. You are the research assistant for the former president of this organization. Like his, his mission has been to, promote um, this idea that there is a, a divinely ordered hierarchy um, where men are at the top. He assigns you some reading, and the reading that he assigns you leads you away from that very line of thinking. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there's, there's, absolutely. There's some irony there, right? <laughs> I mean, I feel like we just could just bit. put on uh, Kendrick Lamar's "Poetic Justice" right now and just end the episode. Like, <laughs> there you go. Um, so, at this point, it, it might be helpful um, to to sort of explain that position, um, especially for people who, who aren't followers of it. This idea. Um, that, that there's a divinely ordered hierarchy where men are at the top, um, it, they take it, they believe it comes directly from the Bible, right? That's why they call it the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, and so there are a couple of texts specifically that they use to 
um, to bolster and support this position. Um, in regards to male leadership in the home, it's usually like Ephesians 5, maybe maybe Colossians as well, but Ephesians 5 where it talks about um, submission and, and, and the um, command for the wife to submit to the, to the husband. Um, and in context of women pastoring, preaching, leading in church, uh, that usually comes from uh, one primary proof text. There's a couple others that support it, but but First Timothy uh, chapter two, um, in which the author, um, which the author is debated, um, but it was Paul. Um, <laughs> you can disagree with that. No, I think uh, it's Paul, so we're good. Well, um, barely Paul, but Paul still. <laughs> so here, here's what First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve says. Just so so that our listeners understand where this idea is coming from. This verse says, um, if it's Paul, says, I permit, um, I'm going to read from the NRSV because that's where I preach from. Um, NRSV says, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Uh, and then he gives his reason for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Uh, and so these couple of verses here, um, 1 Timothy 2, 12, 14, through 14 uh, are the basis for this complementarian idea that women are not supposed to preach or lead in the church. And from this, then they, it, it, they build upon that, like what, what's okay and what's not. Um, do you have anything to add so that we can, we, we want to make sure that we accurately and fairly represent their position. So what do you want to add to that? Well, it also depends too on, on which complementarian we're talking to. Right. Uh, you've got the problem of course, of the, of the belief in the eternal subordination of the son that might go govern a lot of the exegetical ideas, you know, Christ or God being the head of Christ and stuff like that. Um, I think that view, I, I know Owen and a lot of people at CBMW affirm that, but uh, a lot of complementarians I know don't go that route. And so it really just depends on who you're talking to, but it's sad to say that the eternal subordination of the son does play a part in, in a lot of formulation of doctrine because, I mean, let's face it, when you can say Jesus is subordinate to God but yet, quote, equal, <laughs> right. it's a powerful kind of one-line, you know, argument, or at least proposition, which, you know, is hard to dispute, you know, because it's, it's said in such a certain way. But, of course, dispute it, I would, because I'm a classical Christian theist who doesn't believe in the subordination of the Son. But right. there, there is that element of it as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, I, I, just let me, let me insert something yeah. right there really quickly. Um, I think it's really unfortunate that they've turned the doctrine of the Trinity into a platform for complementarianism. Whatever you believe, uh, whether functional subordination, whatever, uh, it's really unfortunate that they've, they've tried to twist that twist the doctrine of the Trinity to support complementarianism. Um, yes. I was, I was around, I was around during that time, that big kerfuffle, which Dr. Strand seems to always get himself in on Twitter with, uh, you know, uh, was it Carl Truman and, and, uh, gosh, I don't remember who they all, who argued about all this and started throwing around the H word quite a bit. Uh, Amy Bird, but, I don't know uh, if she threw around the H word, but Amy Bird was kind of the one I think who started kind of, poking and saying hey yeah big problem here so right yeah yeah i just it, it's just really unfortunate i thought that at that time i think it now do not twist the doctrine of the trinity to fit your ideas <laughs> of gender roles seriously right. what 
I mean, whatever you want to believe, um, someone's right, someone's wrong, by the way, um, <laughs> on that issue. But don't don't twist it to, to fit your idea of uh, anthropology and ecclesiology. Um, that sh- I, I just I that just makes me upset. <laughs> to put anthropology it is your your doctrine of hu- humanity, humankind. Ecclesiology is your doctrine of the church. Just for those of you who need some vocabulary lessons at home. Yep. Yes. Sorry about that, y'all. No, that's good. We we, we try to educate our terms as we go. Um, yes. So the, the the tweet that started this firestorm, um, Owen Strand tweeted: Complementarians disagree cheerfully about much. One thing we have massive disagreement on, he writes, women do not preach on Sunday to the church. Doing so is functional egalitarianism. We will not capitulate here. Um, and then he shared his, his blog post. So um, the basis of which is this text um, in First Timothy chapter 2, and the idea that he gets into, which we're going to talk about, the idea that the the order of creation, the fact that men were created first, is the basis for the fact that men should therefore lead in the home, and in this case, um, in the church. So let's just take some time um, and let's unpack that idea. Um, we, we've we've made the case. Uh, they they have their text, First Timothy chapter two. Verses 12 through 14. Um, so let's talk about why we don't think that that is the quote-unquote clear teaching of Scripture. Um, and I know, Nick, you and Allison have done uh, a whole podcast series on this, and I did a sermon series on this, and Austin, you have um, been reading and talking to Nick extensively about this. So I know we all, we all have some things to say, but where do you want to start to sort of unpack this idea that for two things, I think two things we should address. One, um, that First Timothy chapter two verses twelve through fourteen equate to a universal prohibition on women preaching and leading, um, and two, that the order of creation is um, somehow the ontological basis for this hierarchy. Well, I mean, there's there's numerous just questions. Uh, when you approach 1 Timothy, your first thought is, is this, or at least there's about a dozen questions that come to mind just regarding interpretive method. You know, is this Pauline? If no, then it's a, your, your emphasis will be on different things. Um, if it is, and I do think it, te- it probably is Pauline. Uh, the question then becomes, if, if Pauline, is it a discussion of a worship context? That is, you know, as we said, ecclesiology. Or is it about a conflict between husband and wife or husbands and wives? Because the Greek words can refer to both a ma- male and female generically or specifically husband and wife. And there there is debate about that. Cynthia Westfall uh, and I tend to agree that it's probably husband and wife. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't change it doesn't change anything, but it, but it does bring up questions of the stability of just saying this is a clear teaching of Scripture. Um, there's a few other points. Um, to what extent um, does the only imperative in the passage, the language of a woman must learn, where Paul actually tells women to learn in quietness through, we might say, entire submissiveness, which is not, she's not submissive to male headship, she's submissive to the nature of learning. She has to learn, you know, in verses in uh, chapter 211 that's the only imperative in the passage and so that needs to be taken seriously because that's paul's chief point is a woman has to learn and the fact that he tells women to learn is a really big step (laughs) uh 
and stuff like that. Um, I mean, if you look at just learning throughout Scripture, throughout the Septuagint, throughout Philo, there's always, it, it almost always has kind of an ethical kind of component. You're to learn to do something, and that has an ethical like posture towards it. Um, and then the other issue, there's um, a, the, the biggest issue I think is on this is one Timothy two twelve. Is this a um, there's two aspects of this verse. There's the language of I'm not permitting, which is the Greek uh, finite verb negated in this sense. It's epitrepo. Um, is this a universal prohibition? Paul is not permitting a woman anytime and anywhere to do something. Or is this a temporary prohibition based on or rather contingent upon women learning in the literally the previous verse? Um, based on what I understand this word being used, I've found maybe a few instances where it has, quote, a timeless or eternal perspective. But by and large, in the synoptic gospels, uh, it does not look like it's an eternal thing. So, for example, a classic example that I found that I think is quite powerful is Moses permitted you, same verb, Mm -hmm. permitted you to divorce your wife, but this was because of human hardness of heart. And yep. of course, Jesus goes on to change the law of Moses or rather get us to the heart of Moses, uh, Moses's um, exhortation. Um, he changes like getting back to the heart of worship. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, but it just shows this is not this is not permission. This is, is, that, is that Paul Belosh? Is that who the? Yeah, there we go. Uh, okay. I'm not sure. Probably. Uh, and of course, I'm you have language. Getting of, back uh, to oh, the... sorry, I'm not... getting back to the heart of worship. <laughs> uh, you know, for example, uh, Pilate permitted Joseph of Arimathea to go and bury Jesus. You know, it's a it's a one time act. It's not a universal forever. He is burying Jesus. Um, and Paul himself asked for permission to speak to a group of people in Acts like 21 and 26. And so this verb just on its face doesn't really seem to support the notion that this is a universal, timeless, forever kind of thing. And then the final thing that I found most uh, compelling is the use of the infinitive authentain, um, commonly translated as either um, have authority or exercise authority. Um, I, I've not found a single instance where it's used in a, quote, positive context. Hmm. Um, it's um, and so for example if we look at just the noun form of the verb and since there's so few examples of the, the verb authenteo in comparative literature that means literature that is coordinate with the time of the New Testament you need to look at everything so you can't just look at for verbs you need to look for nouns and verbs how are these words used mm -hmm. and when you look at the, the verbal form the, one of the closest things I've, or the thing I found and I, I've not seen people argue about this is how Philo uses the noun and Philo is written about the time of Paul or Philo is a first century Jewish philosopher he's a Hellenistic uh, Jewish philosopher and he talks a lot about it and he basically and a traitor. Yes, and no, that's that's Josephus. Josephus <laughs> that's is a traitor. Philo. Oh, the, sorry, sorry, you said Philo. I'm no, sorry. No, you're fine. Hey, it happens all the time. No, nah, I just need to find. That's but um, the belief that basically what happens here is the the noun is used by Philo to um, assert. Uh, here, I'll, I'll read the text. This is my translation of it, and so it's a little rough. But you'll notice certain key words that appear in the First Timothy text, and so there's actually a lot a lot of linguistic like. Um, similarities between the two texts. and the, So this is from... Oh gosh, where is it? Um, I, I want to make sure I get this right. It is... Um, oh gosh, where is it? Well, just remind me and I'll, we'll, we'll mention it. But it, it's 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 this actual text. Anyway, um, he says... Um, Therefore, anyone who loves oneself, philo altos, via the surname Cain, must learn, didasco, so that, that learning verb again, that he has slaughtered the namesake of Abel, his image, his individuality, the iconic image according to the type, not the archetype. So again, we see type and archetype. Think Eve and Adam. 
not the family, not the outer form, which he expects to destroy, although they are living, immortal creatures. Let anyone say to him, reeling violently at him, Oh, what have you done, O evil genius? Do you not think to slay the one that loves God's glory, that you will not also dwell before God? You have become a murderer of yourself, authentes, having wow. slain by ambush the only ability you have to live a blameless life. Wow. And so we see instantly numerous things. Um, oh, it's a quad deterius uh, patoria uh, incendiary, uh, 178. Oh, right, 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 right. It's on everybody's shelf at home. I'm yeah, sure. of course. You know, if you, yeah, <laughs> That's exactly. Right. I got it right behind me. Yeah, exactly. But it just there's a reference. I was for, reading for, that just yesterday. Um, but uh, basically, Philo's going after sophists, you know, people that think they have sound mind, self-control, godliness. And so language that comes up in the pastorals, or at least in that text, mm-hmm. they are, of course, lovers of self. And so, and also he talks about Cain be- becoming something, again, a my verb, a, be- a, a transitional verb. You were one thing, and now you've destroyed, basically, you've destroyed your individuality. You've destroyed your ability to have a blameless life in the same way that Eve became a transgressor. And so if we look at this uh, in terms of, uh, people doing something sinful, then we don't have Paul saying women can never exercise or have authority. He's decro- he's prohib- prohibiting uh, a negative use of authority, or we might say of, of control. You are not permit. I'm not permitting you to control your husband or men. And of course, that is conduct that every Christian would agree with. You're not permitted to act like an authoritarian, as as I, I would translate it, to be an authority to be an authoritarian figure. Rather, you are to learn and to grow. And therefore, the instance, the example, the, the for, because Eve sinned or for this reason kind of thing, it makes sense because if Paul's doing biblical theology, the first thing he'll do is say, and this is what happens when someone acts independently and in a controlling way, and that's when Eve, and he, that's why he uses the example of Eve. doesn't mean every woman at one time. He says, there are times when bad things happen, and here's a prime example of it. It's not because Eve was a woman. It's because Eve sinned. There's a difference. And when we, and, and for the record, this hermeneutic applies. We don't exclude men from ministry because of Adam's sin. Why are we willing to do it with Eve? So just basic hermeneutical questions arise from this. But um, those are the issues that I see plaguing any complementarian reading of 1 Timothy 2.12, or of the entire passage. And at the end of the day, I'm kind of left going, linguistically and theologically this reading just doesn't make sense to me because it doesn't seek to understand the text in a biblical theological way and instead basically assumes a previous subculture so those are the things that need to be wrestled with it's not as if i've offered the most definitive reading of it but i think a lot of people really don't understand how how jewish thinking works and if they think narratively Mm -hmm. as my wife has pointed out who's done a lot of work on eve christology then a lot of these texts become far more interesting than simply being a, a tool to ban women from, you know, preaching from behind a pulpit. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. And I think, Nick, everything you just spoke to speaks against uh, something that, that Dr. Strand says in his article and that I've heard uh, many complementarians say, something that I used to say myself, and I'm sure if, if either of you were complementarians at one time said it yourself, uh, taking the Bible at its word or the clear teaching of Scripture. In, in his article that Thomas mentioned earlier, Divine Order in a Chaotic Age on Women Preaching, um, in his subsection called Scripture and History, Men Are Called to Shepherd and Instruct the Corporate Body. Uh, Dr. Strand says this. He says, Biblical teaching on the sexes is not bad. It is not harmful to women. It is good, thunderously good for women and for men. If we take the Bible at its word, then we recognize that there is no way for a woman to instruct the gathered church, whether in an authoritative or non-authoritative way. Everything that Nick just spoke to 
speaks to the how difficult it, to, it is to get our heads around this passage if and only if we take it at its literal or its clear sense. Well, it's English There's, understanding motivated by certain theological ideas within a specific denomination or denominations. <laughs> like th- that yeah. needs to be accounted for too. Like, and and that's yeah. why I get really angry when I see these denominational denominationally motivated English translations that don't have debate. You know, for example, the N- the new NIV. Um, complementarians and egalitarians had to produce a translation. And I think they did really well before the Southern Baptists and the Presbyterian Church in, in America lost their mind over it. But it was a translation where they had to du- duke it out. They actually had to engage with it. When I see translations that are all egalitarian or all complementarian, and yes, I, I include my egalitarian friends in this, there is little to no like intellectual honesty in doing something like that in my mind. Because you're not having yep. to actually fight for what you believe and actually duke it out over the best of research. Because I think egalitarianism, egalitarian research wins. But I don't think, I don't like the idea of us being our own little islands and doing stuff like that. But we need to be aware that a lot of these English translations are motivated by specific denominational affiliations. And that is basically, at that point, that's where a lot of questions of power and, and persuasion come in. Because if you have people who don't know the actual debate, regardless of what they believe, God bless them, whatever they believe, then you're not being educated and scripture is being used in a way to oppress or mislead people who otherwise should at least know what the debate is. And that's why I think a lot of modern English translations kind of, you know, jump out of the boat and miss it. So yeah. in the context of this whole thing, the, when you, there, there's, there's been a lot of Twitter flurry around this. Um, Dr. Al Mohler said something on a, on a Facebook a live broadcast where he said there, you know, there's, uh, let me just find that. Um, well, I don't know if I can find it that quickly. He said, basically there's something about the created order that indicates that the male voice should be the preaching voice. Um, uh, you have others, uh, um, you know, Tom Buck, I, I've gone back and well, not back and forth. I've commented on some of his tweets a couple of times where he talks about the clear teaching of first Timothy chapter two, where they, they read that verse in English out of context. Um, and, and they read it as a, as a universal prohibition on women, um, preaching. And then from that, they begin to make, well, you know, these, these crazy rules like, well, women can, teach a Sunday school class, but they can't teach, you know, they can't preach in, you know, quote unquote, actual sermon as if, that, you know, there was such a thing. Or when the the instant a boy turns 13, therefore she can't teach him. Right. It just right. boils down to Phariseeism. Yeah. It's like, how many, yeah. how many mm-hmm. angels are dancing on the head of your interpretive pin? You know, like how much are we <laughs> going to be doing with this? Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, man, guys, guys, some something that I should have brought up, uh, just in my experience of complementarianism coming out of the church that I was, my wife and I were basically kicked out of, for multiple reasons. Uh, one of which being this issue. So this issue uh, has actually cost me something, um, in major ways. Um, but I wasn't even allowed to serve in the nursery. That's how complementarianism, like how how complementarian the church was. I was not allowed to serve in the nursery because that's what women do, not what men do. Uh, wow. As someone who served in a nursery and coordinates wow. nursery stuff, that is insane. I'm sorry. That yeah. is insane to me. And, yeah, and absolutely. So th- that's that's an excellent example of how – okay. Even, even if 
1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 is a, is, a, is a universal prohibition, which I think we've already cast out on and will continue to. But even if that's true, where in the Bible does it therefore say that only women can serve in the nursery? Right? It's in first social media, Second uh, Corinthians um, <laughs> thirteen five, which may or may not have been written by Thomas on the internet. Who knows? You know, Second Revelations. Second Revelations. Oh. Revelations. Yes, there we go. That's right. Revelations. Yeah, first Complementarians four yeah, one. So <laughs> yeah, and this that's the thing is that it 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 just spirals. It right. spirals into all of these prohibitions that quite honestly, are impossible to uphold and to be consistent with. And you start getting into, and this is one of the things that I've thought a lot about, is the way that complementarianism is often portrayed is akin to 19, like the perfect American 1950s family. So whatever you want to say about complementarianism, the way in which the, the implications and the, the practical application of the doctrine is carried out by, by its proponents is often extrapolated to the point of just you don't even recognize what it is that they're saying. I don't know what I don't know if that's your guys's experience in talking to people, but that's just kind of been my my observation there. Well, it's it, it's a view that as much as I respect people that hold to it, I have family and friends that hold to it. I don't begrudge people for following their conscience on stuff. What I begrudge watching is when people proclaim that this we are united on this issue and i look around at all my complementarian friends and all the gymnastics that go on and all these sorts of things and i go you guys can't agree on whether or not a woman should do anything on sunday aside from serve tea and <laughs> i see this sort of thing where and i i guess at this point it's like i'd have no if owen had said there is massive disagreement on how we implement complementarianism i'm sorry dr strand i want to show respect if dr strand said there is massive disagreement on how we implement complementarian doctrine but at the end of the day we affirm that women would not be elders for example i wouldn't necessarily i mean i'd have a problem with that theologically and exegetically but at least it's like okay then we're, we're, we're dealing we're wrestling honestly with this how do we live scripture out we're wrestling with this but to say we cheerfully agree i'm like <laughs> dude i'm sorry i know numerous complementarians that don't agree with you that the idea that they are that a woman shows up to church without a head covering on, you know, <laughs> right? And, and and so it's one of those where it's like they're and, comp, and egalitarians disagree on stuff all the time too. But the, the whole issue is I think we just need to be more rigorous in our in in our understanding of look like there are differences of opinion within certain things. I mean, Thomas, you and I have talked about this. Um, there are people that affirm women can preach and be pastors and all that stuff, but there is some sort of male headship in the home. Right. They make a distinction and all that sort of stuff, and it's just a really a really rough like just kind of thing but at the end of the day there are there are shades of this but but if we look at it and just go look there is no disagreement there is this i'm like dude everyone can see through it the fact that you're going after beth moore already (laughs) shows that we're disagreeing about this and right and and it's like one kudos to beth moore like preach sister don't stop but like good lord just the out just the 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 what is it the I don't know. I think she kicked over the the amygdala in people's brain. Like they, they just lost their mind over Beth Moore. They really did. So. They but really it's just at the end of the day, I just kind of roll my eyes and go, look, like if you don't think a woman can do this, then you need to do everything you can to include her in every other aspect you think is possible. You can't just give lip service to the oh if she's not doing this, then it's fine. It's like no, like be a champion for her. Like find a spot for her. The problem is, of course, I don't think you have a spot for her in the church, and especially if the Holy Spirit's involved. Uh, good luck stopping that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So well, the, the Holy Spirit only gifts men to preach. Nick. Come on. Well, obviously. I mean, let's be real. Obviously. <laughs> so let's let's get back to the text here. Um, we because th- that that's the basis on which complementarians argue, and I th- I think our point is is that even there they don't have the strongest case. And one of the ways that I I often um, jokingly but also seriously bring um, bring attention to this is they'll look at verse 12 where it says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Uh, That's verse 12. I say, okay, you believe that's a universal prohibition on women preaching, right? And they'll say, that's right. I'll say, okay, well, let's back up three verses. In verse nine, Paul says, women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothing. I say, is that a universal prohibition on gold, pearls, braided hair, or expensive clothing? And they'll say, well, of course not. Those are just cultural examples Paul is giving to make a point. (laughs) To which I'll say, aha, so you're saying that there's maybe something cultural going on behind the text that Paul is talking about. I say this just to bring up the fact that three verses earlier, Paul makes a very similar prohibition that nobody thinks is universal, uh, or almost nobody. Nobody I've ever talked to forbids women from braiding their hair, from wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothing. Um, and and I've never seen anyone bend over backwards to say, and Adam shouldn't be in ministry either, because look at what happened to him. Right. And so it's one of those where it's like, yep. if it's good, if it's good enough for Eve, you have to be able to apply it to Adam. And last I checked, Paul's much harsher on Adam than he is Eve. And I don't know. It's just, it, it's just, I, I don't know. Hermeneutically, right. I just, I never found it to mm-hmm. be a compelling understanding. So we, allow me to make another plug sure. for uh, Cynthia Westfall's book. Uh, she deals with the nature of. Um, the differences between Adam's sin and trans and the, the words that Paul uses uh, for sin and transgression and how he applies that to Adam and Eve um, in a beautiful way. I, I, once again, I wish I had the book with me so I could reference it in a more exact way, but she has a discussion on the nature of, of Paul's usage of, of sin and transgression and, and things like that. And um, she ends up coming down and I think she says, and Nick, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. If you remember uh, I think she says that the transgression that, that Eve commits was done unknowingly to a point or something along those lines. I can't remember. I think it's something to look like it up. that. Adam watched and observed and then did something. Eve simply did it. And also I would add right. that Adam blamed Eve. Eve basically said, no, the source of all this is the serpent. Whereas Adam's like, hey, you gave this to me, You know, his, speaking of his mm-hmm. wife, which he blames God too, which I'm like, you know, Oh, good Lord, we can't trust men <laughs> this as pastors. This woman you they're just gonna, gave to be with Yeah, me. we can't trust men as pastors because, good Lord, look what they how they treated God. They just blamed God for their problems, which if you watch sports and you're like me, you kind of end up doing that. But, you know, I'm a, I'm just a jaded Leafs fan. What do I know? Hey, the Blues are still in it, baby. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, salt, Let's go my Blues. Wound, Play thanks. Gloria. Salt, my wound. Thank you. I need that. Thank you. <laughs> hey, you can be a Blues fan. Come on. Come on. And, and, and Thomas, you're close enough to St. Louis to be a Blues fan. The, yeah, but, is it, yeah, but Thomas uh, has blues, like, is that the um, blues? Is that uh, like music kind of? <laughs> a hockey team, St. Louis Blues. Oh, hockey! That's that's that sport that they play on the ice, right? That is in okay. Canada. Yes, with okay. maple syrup. In yeah, frozen yeah. maple okay. syrup. That's right. Uh, I actually played. I, I played hockey when I was um, like nine years old out in Colorado. 
Yeah, me too. Roller hockey. Uh, that was fun. <laughs> no, we played on real ice. So oh, anyway, nice. <laughs> um, so we, we have this passage where we, we've already seen there are some things going on that may be culturally conditioned. Talk about gold and pearls. And um, I'll just plug really quickly um, a work done by Gary Hogue. He's a professor at um, Asbury. He, he wrote a whole book on um, wealth in, in First Timothy, and, and he did he does this background study on Ephesus. Um, and, and for those of you who, who don't know, uh, most people tend to agree that the, the the cultural context to what's going on in First Timothy, and Nick, you can push back on this, but is uh, T- Timothy is the leader of the church in this ancient city of Ephesus. Um, and in the ancient city of Ephesus, there was this this temple to the goddess Diana or the goddess Artemis, depending on which um, goddess you go with. And it was it was one of the you know wonders of the world, this temple to Diana, and, and the worship of Artemis was a was a major um, economic and religious powerhouse in this city. And what um, Gary Hogue has uncovered is that as a part of the worship. Um, Here's what he writes uh, in his book. He says, um, evidence from ancient sources shows that the rich Ephesian women modeled the way for all Ephesian women to plait their hair like the goddess, to dress to imitate the goddess, to promote the myth that she was the author of life. Um, In other words, so Paul, it it seems like Paul or whoever wrote 1 Timothy is addressing a very specific cultural phenomenon where women were dressing like um, the goddess Diana as a form of worship. And so Paul is saying, hey, those of you who follow Jesus, be careful how you dress so that you are pointing to the the real object of your worship, which is Jesus and not Artemis. And by the way, the leaders of the Artemis cult were women. Um, so anyway, this is, this is the cultural background that may, I think probably is, lying behind... Um, these instructions in First Timothy, um, but that's all. That's all context. Doctor Strand and um, Doctor Moeller's argument comes basically from um, verse verses thirteen and fourteen, where it says Adam was formed first, then Eve, and so from this creation order, Doctor Strand and Doctor Moeller and others have argued that because women were created second, they are therefore supposed to be followers and not leaders in the church. Um, so I think at this point, it, it might be helpful if we go back and we look at the creation narrative um, and we ask, does that make sense? Is that good exegesis of what's actually going on in Genesis? Is there is Adam created to be the head over Eve in original creation? Um so do, do would one of you like to? Yeah, let on? me let me just let me just uh, reference Strand's article here. He he comments on verses thirteen and fourteen, and he says this: the the verse flows, or excuse me, the verse flow mirrors the flow of thought. The breakdown of creation order in the Garden of Eden led to the deception of the woman and the fall of humanity. The stakes are terrifyingly high. When it comes to the design of God and the world of men. Now, I don't mean to be too snarky when I read that. I know he um, is well-meaning, if misguided. 
but that sounds a lot to me, and you maybe you guys can disagree with me if you'd like. That sounds a lot to me like the traditional interpretation of of First Timothy twelve through fourteen, which and I think once again to make another plug for Westfall's book, um, she she uh, describes in quite a lot of detail that the, the traditional exegesis of the passage, which Tom Schreiner as, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary once held, but has since changed in his many updated versions of his book on women in ministry with Andreas Kostenberger, who is uh, actually another professor at Midwestern now. Um, Jason Allen is poaching lots of guys to Midwestern. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But Schreiner even came out and said that he he knew long he no longer held to that inter, uh, that that traditional interpretation, which was that women are now more easily deceived than men, uh, just by their very nature, their their ontology, their very being in essence is that women are more easily deceived, and many sociological studies have shown that that's not the case at oftentimes, and uh, you know Nick can attest to this and the many things I've shared with him that my wife has said she is much wiser than I am she is much <laughs> smarter than me goodness gracious guys she just graduated from dental school like I couldn't do that um, so goodness gracious is she more deceived than me is she naive because she's a woman well Austin um, you're, you're and, just saying that because you're enamored enameled with her <laughs> that's right yeah there we go we brought that back there, there we go there it is there oh, it is but boy. so I, I just think that to to use the fall, whatever we believe about the fall, and I'm a little iffy on that, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> you all can berate me for that. Um, to use that to to almost say, or to even hint at that women are more easily deceived than men because they're women, is, gosh, guys, it's it's super offensive. Well, it's like, I don't think Just the Bible's to, sexist, and that sounds remarkably sexist. Right, and that—that's. I mean, if that's what we're thinking, that's that's kind of just how I read it. And I don't believe people that say that are intending to be that. I mean, I'm sure right. some are, but it's like, one of those where it's like, hey, look, like if you think women by their very ontology are more easily deceived than men, I'm ontology sorry, means nature. Ontology by 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 who God created them to be. There we go. By who God created them to be, that they are more easily deceived, and God made them that way. I don't see that in Christian experience at all. I don't see that taught in the mm -hmm. Bible. And that looks like a culturally easy way to throw women under the theological bus. So um, yep. there are other words I could use, but this is a Christian podcast, and Thomas wouldn't let me say those words. <laughs> no problem here, buddy. Um, well, my mom listens, but, and I might get in trouble. So well, that's, that's the real reason. But uh, Austin, I, I'm glad you brought that up because at heart, and I know that, I know that you have respect for Dr. Strand as a person, but at heart, this is a view that views women as inferior to men. Uh, I, I don't know how you can in good faith say that women are more easy, more likely to be deceived, uh, and are, equal in value. I, I, I think I think those things are fundamentally incompatible with one another. And that is absolutely that that is the position that Dr. Strand and others are taking. Um, that women are and it, and it, fundamentally inferior to men. 
Absolutely. And it flies in the face of Genesis 1. And that's what I want to get to. Um, yeah. So so we, we get to um, the creation narrative in Genesis. In Genesis 1 and 2. Um, yes. Is, the, is there anything in Genesis that suggests the fact... And here's here's the way that I, I like to explain this, and you guys can offer your thoughts. When Jesus is approached by some religious leaders about a question, he points back to the beginning as the foundation for the way things ought to be. Right? It, it, it's in the relation to, to marriage when he does it. Um, so Jesus says, in the beginning, this is the way that it was. And he indicates that the way that things were in the beginning, in, in creation, that story is to set sort of the ideal for the way things ought to be, right? Would we agree on that as a premise? Yes, we would. Or I would, at least. Yes, absolutely. Okay. okay. So that leads to the question, which I think is getting at the heart of what Dr. Strand and Dr. Muller are getting at. Is there anything in the beginning, in the creation narratives, Genesis 1 and 2, that suggests that prior to you know, what we call the fall, that prior to sin, that women were subordinate in any way to men. The closest I've been able to see, personally, and this is what I believed for a while until I knew a little more, was the language of Genesis 2, 20 through 24, where it talks about Eve being a helper. Um, mm-hmm. But if we go back to Genesis 1... God and I'm reading from the new uh, the NRSV and I'll just read it. Then and then God said, "Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion, i.e., authority over the fish of the sea mm-hmm. and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and all the wild animals of the earth and all over creeping thing that creeps upon the earth." So God created humankind in His image, in the image of God He created them, male and female He created them, and then He continues on again with the language of um, be fruitful and multiply, blah blah blah, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. So whatever, and this is the language explicitly of authority. You have this quote dominion. And it's not we don't subject the earth and corrupt it, but you know, earth was a we might say a an untamed good thing that required you know humankind to actually do stuff with it. Um, but at this point, I see no image of authority over or quote male headship. Rather, I see them husband and wife or Adam and Eve together ruling and doing stuff. And the yes. only the only quote gender difference I see is essentially the idea that they need each other to make babies and to be fruitful and multiply. Yes. That's the only quote distinction. And it doesn't mean men and women aren't different, but we don't go and say men and women are therefore different and therefore assume that authority or authoritarianism or something about being male gives you this special preferential treatment. In Genesis, I, I just don't see it. And even in the fall, I mean, I'm sorry, we don't go to the fall for our ethics. Amen. We right. go to Jesus Christ who takes us away from the fall. Right. And that doesn't it, mean it, the fall, you know, it doesn't mean we don't have to deal with sin. And, you know, there are such things as divine condescension and all this sort of stuff. I get that. But we yeah. look to what God originally intended and go, that is our, that is our, our North Star. That is yes. where we go. We may have to walk through heaven and hell to get there, but <laughs> that is where we go. And I don't see this taught anywhere in Genesis, and Alice and I spent a long time looking for it and reading complementary literature and trying to find it here. But the fact is the most explicit language of authority is delegated, shared authority between husband and wife, and that's that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't see anywhere else. 
All right, so yeah, I, I want I want to slow down really quick just to make sure because I think we're I, I think we're getting at the heart of the issue here. Nick, you have just described Genesis one, and in Genesis one, the creation narrative indicates shared authority and responsibility. There's no delineation between roles in male and female in Genesis one. They both have authority and dominion in Genesis one. Is that what we're correct? Right. Okay. Yep. Yep. So now, a lot of people have recognized that Genesis 2 tells sort of a different story, or at least from a different perspective, right? Um, and this is often where the idea of subordination comes in, in Genesis chapter 2, specifically um, from in verse 18. Because in Genesis chapter 2, God creates uh, the male first, um, and then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the, the male is alone, uh, it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make, and then I grew up on the King James Version, and the King James Version said, I will make and help meet for him. Now, funny story, um, in the King James, that's two words. Help meet is two different words in the King James. But growing up, we always combined it into one word, a help meet. Um, that's how we referred, um, in my complementarian, uh, upbringing, that's how we referred to wives. Wives were helpmeets. Uh, we, we made it one word when it is two words in English corresponding to two words in Hebrew, which are what, Nick? Ezer Konegdo, I believe. Ezer Konegdo, that's correct. So, so God says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will create an Ezer Konegdo for him. In King James, that translates as help meet. Meet is a word that means um, adequate. Um, And so people read Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and they see that God creates a helper for the man. And so they say, well, helper. Uh, Helper, you know, if somebody's a helper, then they are a subordinate, right? Um, Austin, have you uh, done much with with these words azer konegdo and specifically what azer means in in hebrew literature yeah a little bit um i won't i can't speak authoritatively or or anything of that nature nor will i or will i try i had a semester of hebrew so uh chalk that up to what you what you will i have enough knowledge to be dangerous and that's about <laughs> it um but that this was actually one of the things that was most um enlightening for me to look at Azer, and recognize that all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God describes himself with that very word Yes, to his creation. Um, David in the Psalms over and over refers to God as his Azer, his helper. Um, and so if we want to say that uh, women are subordinate because they are our helper, well, golly, what does that say about God? And that goes back to Nick's point about accusing God. Right, right. Um, so just just a couple of verses to, to illustrate the point that you just made. Um, the next time, um, or one of the next times this, this word azer uh, appears in the Hebrew scriptures is in Exodus chapter 18. Um, and it's in regard to 
one of Moses's sons. In Exodus chapter 18, verses 2 through 4 say this. It says, One son of Moses was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other son was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper, my Azer. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Um, and as you pointed out, Austin, this word Azer when it shows up in scripture, never once does it describe a subordinate. It always refers to somebody with strength, oftentimes a rescuer or a deliverer. Um, so, so Azer, we think of, you know, helper, somebody as a subordinate who's subservient. Um, but the Hebrew word Azer is never used in that way. It's always referred to somebody who is strong and powerful and helps in the sense of if you are drowning in the pool, I help you. I'm your Azer when I pull you out of the pool. Um, it's, it's a rescuing help, not a um, I will sweep the floor for you um, type help. And this is the word. And all that... the married men said, amen. <laughs> amen. Uh, this is the word that is used in Genesis chapter 2 to describe what this helper would be to, um, I don't know, the, the second word, konegdo, is, is a word that means similar or corresponding to. It means equal to. As a matter of fact, one Jewish rabbi translates this phrase, azer konegdo, as a power equal to man. I thought that was fascinating. Uh, and so this idea that... In creation, the the woman was was created to be subordinate or subservient to the man. There's no exegetical basis for that claim. None. Both creation accounts indicate that men and women were created to be equals. That that the the woman was created to be a a corresponding companion to a, a power equal to the man. Um, pop quiz, when do we see hierarchy introduced into the story? That would be in the fall. In or the as fall. I, I prefer to call it the desecration. But the des- Oh, I like that. I like that. There we go. Oh, yeah. So, so in the fall, in the desecration, after the sin, right, they both sin. After the sin, the consequence, one of the consequences of the fall is that the... Um, the woman will be subordinate, subservient to the male. That Eve will be subordinate, subservient to um, Adam. This is an effect of the curse, right? This is not original creation. This is an effect of the curse. So what really sealed the deal for me with all of this is what did Jesus come to do? Reverse the curse. Reverse the curse. Someone says from the congregation. Reverse the curse. Jesus came to reverse the curse. And so if Jesus came to reverse the curse, then this idea of female subordination, so that, that means one of two things when we get back to 1 Timothy. Either Paul misinterpreted Genesis right by by claiming creation order as a basis for authority and hierarchy or something else is going on now i'm not i have friends who are willing to say that paul exegeted genesis badly 
I happen to think that Paul probably understood it correctly. The reason I think this is because I know that Paul worked with women in ministry. He, he praised mm-hmm. women in ministry. Um, and that, that's a whole other, other thing here. Um, we should get to that. We should get to that. Um, we'll get there in just a second. But either Paul misinterpreted Genesis because in Genesis there's no hierarchy, no subordination, or there's something else going on in 1 Timothy, which Nick alluded to earlier, that, that Paul was talking about a specific um, example. And N.T. Wright has an explanation that I think makes um, a lot of sense. N.T. Wright saying, mm-hmm. listen, if you look at the first thing, like women need to be given space to learn because the first woman wasn't given enough space to learn it and she was deceived. So we need, we need women need to be able to learn so that they're not deceived. Um, so anyway, the, the, we've taken the long way to get to this mm-hmm. point that creation order there's nothing in creation order that suggests that men are subserv- that men are to be um, over authority in women, and mm-hmm. that hierarchy was a result of the curse, and Jesus came to re- to reverse the curse. I'm going to yeah. drink my beer and stop talking, and let you guys say something. Yeah. Well, even at just at, at the most basic level, the the idea that learn being told to learn something and it not have any effect on your life is insane. So, for example, I mean, we, we see this sort of thing in uh, some uh, extra-biblical literature, Jewish literature. In, in Sirach 18.9, he flat out says, before you speak, you must learn. And before you become ill, take care of yourself. And so there's this idea of, before you pop off and say stuff, before you do all this sort of stuff independently, learn something. Like, And the fact that women are told to learn is itself a radical notion in the ancient Yes. World. And the fact that Paul takes the time and says, you need to learn about what this is. You're not allowed to bring Artemis with you. I'm, I mean, I'm not fully on board with, you know, the, the reconstruction of, of the Artemis cult. But I, I mean, I think that's part of it. You don't get to bring this with you. Um, you don't get to bring, you know, uh, all these other things with you. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, Paul wouldn't tolerate it for a time. But it's like, no, at the end of the day, I don't want slave master. I don't want slaveholders in my church. Hmm. And I think Paul kind of really pushes that with Philemon and other places. Um, but that's a different, you know, that's a conversation yeah. for a different time. Yeah. Point being, though, you have either, and I think you're right, Thomas, either Paul just so misused Genesis uh, to the point where we, no one recognizes what he's getting at, or he's doing something different. And as someone who believes in the authority of Scripture and all these sorts of things, I don't need Paul being so bad with his own text so as to use it to exclude women from the pulpit. I think Paul is far too interesting and far too good of a Jewish thinker to go that route, frankly. Well, and not only that, but that would be terribly out of character with Paul's previous interactions with women. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, yep. So let's let's shift gears here and let's talk about um, Paul and his interactions with other women. Do we have? Is there is there any other evidence in the text that Paul knew about, uh, worked with? Uh, is there is there anything else in Paul's oh. life that could shed some light on his understanding of women in positions of church leadership? Oh, just a few. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys, just a few. Um, before we hop into that, I wanted to add just a little bit um, yeah. of something to the Genesis discussion. Yes. Um, oftentimes, uh, complementarians will simply assert their position as if they're right. <laughs> Um, and I think like they, they don't, Sorry, they don't feel the need to, so. no, I mean, it's, but it's true. It, it, 
I think one, it ignores the context of, of Genesis, whatever you want to believe. I'm on board with John Walton and uh, people like him. Um, but that, that's another discussion. But just even in the first or the second paragraph of Strand's article, he says the man is created first in the Old Testament and possesses what the New Testament will call headship over his wife. Adam is constituted the leader of his home. He is given authority in it, authority that is shaped in a Christ-like way as the biblical story unfolds. Where, where is that, guys? In Genesis one and two, no way. I have a hard, I, I have a hard time seeing that. You know, if you want to seek to exegete your position, that's fine. I think you know Nick and I have talked about Ray Ortland in, in his article in the the Big Blue Book, the recovery of biblical manhood and womanhood, and mm-hmm. and how outdated the research is there. Um, that's not a you know a snub at Ray Ortland or anything, but it's just the the quality of the research isn't that great. Um, like Nick said earlier, I think the egalitarian research wins, but just a word to any complementarian listeners, just don't, don't assert your view, explain it, exegete the text for us and, and seek to understand where we're coming from as well. And so I think though, that that leads into, uh, the text that, that we're going to talk about with Paul and his, his interactions with women uh, women's ministry, women in ministry, and working alongside them. My favorite isn't what most people uh, speak about, at least in, in the conversations I've had with Junia in, in Romans uh, 16. My favorite is actually Philippians 4, and uh, maybe we can get to that in a little bit. I, I don't want to uh, dominate the conversation. No, here, so take us there. Take no, us there. with it. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So uh, Philippians 4, I'm actually going to pull it up because I don't want to misquote it. Because that's um, sinful and you go to hell for that. So just so you know. That's right. Ex- exactly, everybody. You know, mm-hmm. And I also will read from the NRSV just to uh, keep some consistency here. Paul says in uh, Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, that's, that's key too, guys, by the way, but that's another conversation, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, so these women have struggled beside Paul in his work for the gospel. I, I don't know how much clearer it can get. Uh, that's my favorite passage because he clearly states that Yudia and Syntyche, two women, have worked, have struggled beside him in gospel ministry. And for me, I just kind of like mic drop. That, that just, I don't know how much clear Paul's position on on women in ministry. Um, you, you, you can't necessarily get to women's ordination there, but they're laboring beside the Apostle Paul, uh, struggling, he says, at in proclaiming the gospel. And that's my, that's my favorite passage on the, the issue. And I think it often gets overlooked, but it, I think it packs a, a powerful explanatory punch. Well, yes. and, and something else to consider too. And this, this idea gets, it gets overlooked. If you look at the Pauline corpus, you have, let's say I'm not willing to grant first Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. Cause I do think it's textu- textually suspicious. I do think it was a later edition, but you have that text perhaps if authentic and the pat and uh, one Timothy two twelve, If, 
if complementarianism were Paul's default mode and he was intent he was intent to say Dr. Strand at implementing that, I would expect to see that made a point of in Romans 16. I would expect to see that made a point of in uh, uh, Philippians 4, 2 to 3. I'd expect to see that used in reference to Nympha and other church ministry leaders in uh, Colossians and also maybe Chloe's people in 1 Corinthians 111 and those sorts of things. I'd expect to see that principle laid out clearly and consistently throughout all the Pauline epistles. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to ask. What we see, though, when we go to, say, Romans 16 with all the, you know, Mary and Phoebe and Junia and all these other women is Paul doesn't say... Um, Nick, back yes. up and give us give us some. What is Romans sixteen? Romans sixteen. Let me pull that up real quick. Romans sixteen is uh, following Romans uh, fifteen, and uh, but um, uh, but Romans sixteen <laughs> is is kind of Paul's concluding word to the church in Rome. So he begins with this massive list of people, name, just naming people left and right. You know, you get a mention, you get a shout out, you get a shout out, and so on and so forth. And he begin, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible because that's the one I have open at the moment. Um, and it begins with introducing um, Phoebe to the church. Uh, she's a deacon, a diaconos. Uh, she's to be. Uh, she's been a sponsor or a patron of a lot of people, including Paul. And that word patron or sponsor, as the CEB renders it, probably denotes some form of financial leadership. Um, she also may have been the emissary of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans because he, he's introducing her first. Um, but you see Priscilla and Aquila. You see um, Mary, who has worked very hard for you or labored with you. And all these different people. Like, Paul doesn't even know some of their names. And he says, so-and-so and their sister in verse 15. You know, he's just naming everyone. And the fact that this entire 16 verses, men and women are named together without distinction. Or, yes, the women are great too, but we thank you to the leaders, especially. He doesn't do that. And what is interesting is that he names all these women. He names this language of... Uh, uh, Andronicus and Junia in Romans 16.7. I think this is one of the more interesting texts because it's so suggestive. He says, and I'm reading from the CEB, but greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives and my fellow prisoners. They are prominent among the apostles and they were in Christ before me. And so a lot of people will go, well, it could be a man's name. It's not. Could be that, uh, I mean, and literally, I mean, they entertain that idea in the Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood book. Douglas Moo, who's a prominent complementarian, thinks it's a bad argument. And that's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those where most people are willing to go away from that. The people that don't know, well, now you know. Uh, and, you know, the language <laughs> of my relatives and my fellow prisoners, so they were with Paul, uh, presumably doing what Paul was doing, which was subversive enough to get thrown in prison. <laughs> um, and that says they are prominent among the apostles, which is a disputed phrase. But if we look at how that language is used elsewhere, you know, the prominent among some people say they're well known to the apostles um, that. OK, without getting too technical, that's an adjective uh, epistemos, which lifts up a person and basically says this thing is preeminent or prominent among other things. It's a distinguishing mark, for example, on something on a coin. It's a distinguishing mark. There's or a flag on a ship that distinguishes it as a as the head ship. We, pun intended. <laughs> as the head ship among other ships, um, Philo uses it uh, to talk about a special or distinguished flocks and coins, um, a person with special status. And so this is not these aren't a cup. This isn't a couple that are well known to the apostles, but they are prominent within a select group of apostles. And the language of apostle here, a lot of people say, well, that could mean missionary. Yeah, it could. But if we look at how Paul uses the term for himself in Romans, which is their, the, 
this church's only reference, it is not just a missionary. And, if we... and to add some support to this for people who don't necessarily understand the Greek or the grammar, I just want to point out that throughout history, um, number one, uh, John Chrysostom, who was a 4th century archbishop, um, in, Himself uh, not very favorable towards women. We no, have. no, not very um, at all. Uh, and he was um, not in Alexandria. He was in, um, oh, I'm blanking. What was the other major city? Oh, um, gosh. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, keep going. I'll find it. I, I, yeah. Uh, I so anyway, it. he was 4th century. Constantinople, Arch- that's it. Yeah, Constantinople. There we go. Um, so he was the 4th century archbishop. Uh, and and he wrote this in his uh, in um, one of his sermons. Um, he said, "Oh, how great is the devotion of this woman that she should even be counted worthy of the appellation of apostle." So, in other words, in the fourth century, John Chrysostom recognizes that um, Junia was both a woman and an apostle. Later in history. Um, some misogynistic dudes changed, get, they gave Junia a sex change. Um, they made her a man. Um, and while Junia was a man named Junius, it was virtually undisputed that she was, that Junius was an apostle. That everybody, everybody understood that Junius was an apostle. When it became known that Junius was actually a woman named Junia, all of a sudden people's interpretation of Romans chapter 16 verse 7 began to change. All of a sudden this person who had been an apostle all along while they were a man is now suddenly just well known to the apostles, just indicating the gender bias uh, in translation and interpretation. Well, it's uh, uh, to, to, and, and, to make oh. just the point more clear, I don't know about you, um, and I don't know about anyone else, but if I have evidence in an apologetic or cultural context, and I can say, look, Christianity was not sexist or is not <laughs> sexist, and I can prove it to you because women carried the same prominent authority positions in the early church as men did, why the snickerdoodle wouldn't you want to jump at that? I mean, right. just just at the most basic level, yeah. Yeah. you have these women leaders, you know, Yodi and Syntyche, Junia, Phoebe, all these different women. Why wouldn't you jump up and down in joy to say, hey, look, mm. suck it, atheists. You know, we were, we've been doing this for the whole time. You know, we've been we, we have. Right. Been... We've been feminists from the beginning. It's like we coined That's it, right. basically. I mean, if we go back to Genesis, yeah. you know, 6000 years ago, we clearly have been feminists this entire time, you know, and, it, and yeah. I think this hits on an important point in the writing of history, mm. um, or at least in the perception of history. Um, allow me to return to Dr. Strand's article. Um, You're permitted. It's, we will it's under that his, temporarily. His, that's right. Temporarily. In his uh, subsection, Scripture and History, he says uh, he's critiquing Beth Moore and J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he says that their view was new to him. And he says, Southern Baptists have never embraced such a view. And then a few sentences later, it, it, the sentence in between, he uh, kind of skates skates over Priscilla's words in Acts 18, um, which is often uh, the, the case when complementarians are pressed with Junia, Iodia, Syntyche. But uh, I digress. He says that Christ did not appoint a woman to be an apostle, nor did any woman serve as an elder in the first century churches spoken of in Scripture. 
He then relegates uh, women to the role of housemaker and wife, which we I think all three of us would agree that being uh, a housemaker is is a worthy thing if that's yes. what you're called to. It, absolutely. Uh, if, if you are called to that and that's what you want to do, that's what my wife wants to do. She wants to be a housemate. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not saying that there's right. anything wrong with that. We're not saying every woman needs to be a pastor. What we're saying is that the spirit doesn't uh, discriminate based upon gender and Amen. giftings. And and so this whitewashing of history, this, this viewing it only through a reformed lens, a complementarian lens is – it, it's it's just dishonest, and with all the respect in the world, because I, I came on here to to bring a balance to to humanize Doctor Strand because he he is a godly man and he loves his family well, and I've seen that like firsthand. I, I've seen that firsthand. But the way that he paints history is just dishonest. I mean, you can look up uh, Albert Muller's inaugural speech in 1993 as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and you have women who are advocating. Uh, for their own ordination. Um, it's only when you want to paper over history and say, well, those were just the liberal years before the conservative resurgence and we got back to the Bible. It, it's it's just a whitewashing of history. It's a complementarian washing of history. Well, it, it also um, is just moving the goalposts. It's like, look, either you have this history or you don't. Right. And it's one of those, like, if we're not willing to be honest with history, then 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 basically the liberals win. You know, postmodernism wins. Like that. You know, I'm, I'm being slightly facetious, yep. but that's the point. Is right. unless you're willing to honestly grapple with your history. I mean, Southern Baptists were ordaining women quite a while back. So, I mean, yep. call it the liberals, call it whatever you want, but you can't just suddenly say, "Oh, the liberals are doing it, therefore we didn't. It didn't happen." It's like, <laughs> well, no, that's not how history works. Right. Sorry. And it's very unbaptist, by the way. Very. Um, it's like soul liberty, individual autonomy, local congregation. Hello. <laughs> That's right. So, That's right. That's why I'm thankful for the Anglican Church, which uh, is there's there's cheerful disagreement to uh, coin <laughs> oh my to coin us. I see what space. you did there. there there's, that's right. There's there's you know cheerful disagreement with even within the new denomination that that my wife and I are a part of. But guess what? And to use a, a dirty uh, cultural word, um, we coexist. There are congregations. Yes. There are dioceses. Um, that are complementarian who don't ordain women. I wish they would. And Tish, uh, Tish Harrison uh, up in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, I think she's up in Pennsylvania. She wrote a book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. She did a uh, episode book. on, yes, she did an episode with Shane Blackshear on, on uh, Seminary Dropout where she argues historically, biblically, and theologically for women's ordination, especially within the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America. And she does so beautifully. And like I said earlier, my first experience with women as pastors has been at an Anglican church, and it has been more impactful for me, um, especially because of my own history with my own father and, and men in my past. Um, it's been so powerful to sit under their preaching and their counsel and their wisdom. And as I've struggled in my life over the last six months and for them to come alongside my wife and I with a motherly touch. Oh my goodness, guys, there is so much power in empowering uh, 50% of the body of Christ that we Mm. need to, we need to advocate for women in ministry ordained ministry. Um, I think we need to be more vocal about it. I'm Mm. kind of getting fired up here just because of how (laughs) much um, these, these women have affected my life in such a short period of time. But 
Well, and there's, uh, we just have to be honest. And yeah. you're not well, – we want to make sure that we're communicating clearly here is, is you're not just capitulating to culture. Amen. This is – we have historical and exegetical documentation. People always accuse me when I talk about women in ministry of, of capitulating to culture. I say, no, I support women in ministry because I think that's the best exegesis of the text. Mm-hmm. Um we see that Paul knew about, talked about, praised women in ministry. As a matter of fact, we talked about Phoebe. She's the one who probably carried the letter to the Romans and, and possibly even explained it, uh, you know, um, read it and, and explained it. But Origen um, of Alexandria in the third century, um, talking about Phoebe, here's what, here's what Origen in the third century says about Phoebe. He says, this passage teaches that there were women ordained in the church's ministry by the apostles' authority. Not only that, he says, they ought to be ordained into the ministry because they helped in many ways and by their good services deserved the praise even of the apostle. Mm -hmm. So we have Phoebe, who is this... She's definitely a deacon, um, perhaps even a president of a local congregation, depending on how you want to translate... Um, Protasis. Um, you have the, all of these other women that that when Paul uses the language he uses about them, about other men, we know he's talking about partners in ordained ministry. So we have this example. We have Paul knowingly working with female apostles, female deacons, and 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 house church leaders. Um, so note. One of the things I, I like to say, and I, I've I'm sort of taken this from somebody else and adapted a little bit, but if we want to know what Paul means by what he says, we need to look at what he does. And so if we believe that Paul wrote 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, we have to look at the fact that in so many other places, Paul praises women working in preaching in ordained ministry that if it was a man we, we would we would know that off the bat and so first timothy chapter 2 verse 12 needs to be understood in light of its specific context and nothing in there suggests that this is a universal prohibition against women in leadership and especially not based on any sort of contrived authority based in creation um, so I just wanted to Absolutely. to recap that in one particular thing. So people who are listening, who's, um, you know, we've we've gone on some very important and necessary tangents, but I wanted to have a, you know, people can hear from beginning to end that this is this is Paul's ministry and what he says in First Timothy chapter two needs to be understood in light of what he does and his life is a life that is supportive of of women in ministry. Um, and all of that to say that, Austin, your wonderful experience is not just capitulation to culture. It is deeply in line with Christian tradition all the way from the very beginning, um, Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And to that, we say amen. 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 Just one, one quick thing. One quick thing uh, or a couple. Yeah. As, as we kind of come to a close is that uh, Scott McKnight and N.T. Wright have been huge for me. And Scott McKnight's book, in, in Scott McKnight's book, uh, The Blue Parakeet, he he dives into this issue and he asks, 
he asks people who I think he's kind of digging at complementarians and he goes through everything that women do in scripture and he asks, are there women in your churches doing this? And I think that's the question that we need to, to pose to our complementarian brothers and sisters. Are women in your churches doing what the scriptures give examples of them doing? And secondly, I think that as we talked about Genesis and we talked about the fall and all of those things, N.T. Wright talks about new creation a lot. And do we want to pattern ourselves off of old creation right. after the fall? Or do we want to pattern ourselves after new creation? And I, I for one, want to pattern uh, ourselves and pattern our churches after new creation with the full inclusion of women in ordained ministry where they're freed up to use their gifts that they've been given by the Holy Spirit um, to work for God's glory and to work for the good of their fellow brothers and sisters. And uh, if I could, I just want to give a shout out to a few of the women pastors who have deeply affected me. Is that all right? Yes, please. So the, the women at Christ Church Anglican in Overland Park, um, Amanda and Trish and Beth, you all have been awesome. And uh, I just want to continue to support you in ministry. I lament the fact that we didn't have any women on the podcast today. Yeah. But uh, I know Allison is uh, in full support of what's going on. And so is my wife and Thomas. I'm sure your wife is as well. And for, for any women who are listening, we just want you to know from the bottom of our hearts, uh, we absolutely affirm your calling. We affirm the Holy Spirit's work in empowering in your life, and we affirm that you have the God-given authority to preach and teach and lead at any and all levels to which the Holy Spirit might call and empower you. And in doing so, you are not, despite what anybody says, you are not in rebellion to Scripture. You are not in rebellion to God. You are not in rebellion to the Holy Spirit. But you are firmly in line with Christian tradition from the very beginning. And you are fulfilling a deep need in the body of Christ. And we uh, affirm and support you and... Um, if you need somebody to fight your battles so that you can do ministry, just tag us on Twitter and we're happy to do that for you. <laughs> one of the, uh, Amen. one of the most uh, profound experiences I've had in the, in the local church was, uh, my pa senior pastor, who's a woman, uh, we were doing communion together and mm. we finished and, um, I, I have this weird thing. I have a liturgical, you know, kind of background. I went to African, uh, a black Episcopalian church with Allison for three years wow. while in seminary. And, uh, when my pastor, you know, uh, normally, I mean, we, we do it. Well, anyway, I won't get into it, but basically she turned to me, offered me the bread and said, and I think what she said was my body broken for you. And hearing my pastor say that to me caught me off guard because it's one of those, I just never had experienced that. Then it, it took me a second and, and then I, I, I kind of let that sink in. And it, it got me back to the idea of the body of Christ being mm. this thing where there's, and you know, I'm not too sacramental, but I'm, for a Baptist, I'm quite sacramental. <laughs> but the idea being that a woman would break the bread and offer it to me and saying, the bo my body broken for you, uh, really struck home for me. And then, you know, my blood shed for you and for all for, for the forgiveness of sins. I took that and, um, excuse me. Then, you know, she gave me the bread and I, I did the same for her and I said the same thing. And we just had this one weird little moment where we just kind of looked at each other because I just started at church and I'm I'm the only man on staff, technically. I I'm, I think there's four women on staff and I'm the only guy, which is kind of me, <laughs> means I kind of get, I in a little way, I kind of get what it's like to be a woman on staff because most of the time it's one 
woman on staff and 10 guys, or if you're lucky, there's one woman on staff. But, but just in that moment, it was one of those really uh, profound experiences having the body of Christ offered to me by, uh, by sister in Christ. And it, it really just kind of stuck with me. And so um, it's one of those things where when women are leading with men as partners in the local church, uh, there is a sense in which um, because we believe we are different, we need each other. It's one of those where, uh, and that's how John Golden Gay used to say it to me. We don't ordain you because you're equal with us, although we, do, oh, we, although we do believe that. We ordain you because you're different from us, and we need both the image of God together to represent Christ in the lives of everyone. And so for my sisters who struggle with not their calling, but the culture in which refuses to recognize their calling, um, just keep preaching because that's the greatest act of Christ-like rebelling you can ever do. Mm. Amen. Amen. And we affirm and support you, and more importantly, um, God does, and the Holy Spirit does. Even if we didn't, the Spirit supports you. That's right. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Well, Austin, um, this was... This was your idea. Uh, Nick and I were gonna we're gonna get around to this eventually, but when this uh, thing with Doctor Strand broke out, you said, "Hey, I uh, I worked with him. Why don't we get together and talk about it on the podcast?" So thanks for uh, number one, uh, your your courage to follow where, um, where the Spirit was leading you as you studied that. That it's not easy to to question, especially in those environments, to question um, the the authoritative authoritative teaching of those. So thank you for your, your courage and humility to, to be willing to question that. And now your advocacy for um, women in ministry and your, your support. And um, thanks for being such a great friend to, to Nick and I have enjoyed getting to know you over, over the social media and, and thanks for being willing to come on here and share some of your story with us. Thanks for uh, sharing, sharing this with me. I really enjoyed uh, getting to talk with you guys. It was really enjoyable and I hope Hope your listeners uh, enjoy the conversation as well. Amen. Well, this has been another episode of the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet. By God's providence, of course, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.